as we start this morning, I want to draw a, a bit of a parallel um, for the message this morning and, and what's going on around us uh, in our city the last few days. Um, one of my favorite classes in seminary was a class called hermeneutics. Um, hermeneutics is a big word that means uh, the art and science of biblical interpretation. You follow that? The art and science of biblical interpretation. So there's an art to understanding the Bible, and there's a science to understanding the Bible. Things you need to do to understand the Bible, and then the, the nuance is the art piece. Of, so art and science kind of come together for us to understand the Bible, and the study of that is called hermeneutics. Um, interesting fact, if you are someone who practices hermeneutics, you are a hermeneut. It's true. Um, it's kind of funny. So um, I consider myself to be a hermeneut and uh, want to do some hermeneutics this morning. But the idea, it, it's really threefold. What I learned in, in that class is threefold. It's, it's um, listening, like to listen to what the text says, listen to it. And then to put yourself in a posture, not just to listen, but to learn from the text. The text has something to say to us, to teach us something. And it, it's, when I say learn, we all, we all know what learning means, but I think there's more to this word when we talk about hermeneutics than just to, you know, to be able to regurgitate facts. But to learn means to put yourself in a posture where you know that there's something that what you're learning from knows that you don't yet know. Do you understand how there's a posture to that? Like when, if, uh, when, when I go to someone who's smarter than me or has information that I don't have, I place myself in a posture to learn from them. And to do good hermeneutics is to put yourself in a posture where I can learn from what I'm going to study. You follow that? And then the last piece, uh, probably the most important piece to hermeneutics, the art and science of biblical interpretation, is to lay down your presuppositions. Many times you come to a text thinking you know what it says to you. You know what it's going to say. You know the voice that it has. You know everything about it. And when you do that, you come with presuppositions. And the idea is to lay them down. Like, I don't want to have any presuppositions about what I think you're going to say to me. Um, as, as I think about that idea, um, and, and as I begin to study the Bible from this perspective, to listen, to learn, and to lay down my presuppositions. There's no intentional alliteration there, by the way. I'm, I want you to know that I, I, I don't like, I like alliteration. Just, there's no, it's not intentional to, to learn, to listen, and to lay down. Um, although it might help you remember. Um, digression is not my friend. Uh, but when I began to study scripture from a hermeneutical standpoint, like lights came on for me. I began to understand what the scripture was teaching. And, and you begin to, to study like context. You begin to study the original author. You begin to study what happened to the original author to bring him to the place to write this. What happened to the original audience to bring them to a place where they needed to hear this. What happened to me to bring me to a place that's going to understand all of those things together. And, and this understanding piece is really important. And there's this, this excitement, there's this need, there's this encouragement, 
that dwells within me to want to understand what's happening in this text because I want to learn what it's got to say to me. And this idea, this notion is exactly where I believe God wants me to lead this church in this race conversation. Too long, too often, we don't do these things. Listen, learn, and lay down our presuppositions. And probably the most important piece is to lay down our presuppositions about what we think someone is going to say to us about what's happening in our city. It involves a lot of head shaking and eye rolling. And, it, and it's not a, a godly posture, and it's not the posture that God intends for us to have. So the same way we come to Scripture with the intent to learn and be changed and be shaped in a positive way, this is the direction for us, to listen, to learn, and more than just learn facts, but to put yourself in a posture that says, you have something to speak to my life, and then to lay down our presuppositions. It's, uh, it's absolutely important, especially for us that go to church and live in this particular community. We've got to do this better. I've got to do this better. Um, and that notion is also applicable to what we will look at here today. Um, like, I think that there's been, not ready yet to, to get into the heart of 1 Corinthians 3.16. Um, I think there's a piece of me, I don't think, I know, there's a piece of me that um, wants to understand justice. Um, growing up in the church that I grew up in, everything was centered around understanding and learning biblical rules and values, and that's good. It can move into bad and sometimes did and sometimes does, moves into bad, but it's good to understand biblical rules and biblical values. It's important. At some point around my mid-20s, I begin to, to study this idea of the theology of salvation, how it happened, who did it, what's going on, what my role in it, in it, in it is, what the role of people around me in it is, what the role of God in it is, and it fascinated me because it was something that was brand new to me, and I gave several years of my life to studying this idea of the, of the theology of salvation. I am currently fascinated with the theology of justice. I admit to you as a pastor that I don't know enough about the theology of justice, and I've seen and heard it a lot in the last four to five years about this theology of justice and what does it mean. And at this point, I think what it means is God's intended purpose and design for this world. What is right and what is not right. And it's clear there's a lot happening in our world that's just not right. I look at lots of things. The death of a loved one. The, the, the racial tension in our city what happened surrounding the, the events of last week, what happened six years ago during that altercation. There's a lot of injustice that happened in that, in that moment. But the theology of justice is this, that God intends to set things right. 
and God will set things right. And God is in the process of setting things right. And the, the theology of the Holy Spirit as applied to the theology of justice means that the Holy Spirit lives in you. And God's plan is to inject his attributes, one of which is justice, into this world. So our role, our, our call, our mandate as Christians with the Holy Spirit, with God living in us, is to inject justice into this world. And I don't know, I, I don't have, okay, this is what justice is going to look like for you today. I don't, I don't know that I have that for you today. But I have a promise to you that I'm going to study and learn and give myself to the theology of justice and lead us there. Um, I think it's, it's really important. Stay tuned. 1 Corinthians 3.16, I think we'll tie some of this together. Um, Jesus, I'm going to read uh, some stuff to you about who Jesus is. Jesus is everything. Jesus has shown us what it looks like to serve. He is our model of service and of sacrifice. He is our model of love and forgiveness. He is our model of obedience and perseverance. He is our teacher. He is the author of our faith. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He is our redeemer. He is the gospel. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He broke the rules of culture in order to engage with people. He healed sick people. He fed hungry people. He confronted oppressive people. He comforted oppressed people. He loved people. Jesus is everything. All of those things. He's our redeemer, our healer, our, the author of our faith. He, he's a forgiver. He, he authored forgiveness. He authored grace. He, he confronted oppressive. He, he comforted the oppressed. All of these things is who Jesus is. Yet, Jesus says, just before he leaves the earth, in John 16, 7, understand that Jesus is everything. There's nothing more important in this world than Jesus and what we do with him and what he did here on this planet. But listen to what he says. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Do you see, like, Jesus, I hope in the midst of, of all of your time that you've spent here in this place, you understand that Jesus is really, really, really important. But look at what Jesus just said to his disciples. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage if I go away. Consider the, the, the depth of that statement that Jesus just said. He is so massively important, but it's, it's to your benefit and my benefit that for Jesus to go away. Can you imagine that? Something so good and so valuable for you it's, it's more valuable than Jesus being here with you. Do you realize the Holy Spirit living in you is more valuable to you than Jesus sitting next to you? Think about that. Like, that's baffling. But Jesus just said that to you. He said that to his disciples. It's one of the most incredible verses in all of Scripture. It's for your benefit for Jesus to go away. Man. 
Why is that? It's the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Holy Spirit dwells in you? I want to talk about two words here. Spirit and temple. Temple is, um, is a really important word that's here. And it, uh, let me give a, a bit of an illustration here. Um, a lot of you guys know that I like to play golf. I used to play a lot of golf and now I don't because I'm, I'm old and I don't have a lot of time and my shoulders hurt and my back hurts and whatever. But there was a time where I played a lot of golf. <clears throat> um, back in, I, I'm, I think it was 98, I was, uh, happened to, to win a particular golf tournament with some friends and we got to go play uh, a golf course in Florida called the TPC Sawgrass. Uh, some of you guys may have heard of it. Um, they play the Players' Championship there every year, and, and all of the best players in the world, I think there's 60 golfers every year that get invited to come play in this golf tournament. So the, only the best golfers in the world get to play in this golf tournament. And the 17th hole is, is maybe the most famous golf hole on the planet, and it's an island hole. You have, if you, when I'm talking about this, you might have remembered seeing it. There's this island, and it's a green, and we're, we're hitting the ball onto this island. It's not really an island because there's a patch of grass that's about that wide that goes from the main golf course and you walk from the back of the, onto the green through this patch of grass. And I remember, I played that, that hole like four times. I remember every time I walked, I walked through that patch of grass. And seriously, it's like this wide, like barely enough for you to, like a, a caddy to, to carry a golf bag across this, this small piece of land. And I remember thinking to myself, the most incredible golfers in the world have walked across this like have walked where I'm walking. Like they've all been on that golf course before, but the steps that I'm taking are the steps that they took. Um, and I'm a, I'm a big Payne Stewart fan. If you guys know, know golf much, he was, he was a great golfer in the, the mid nineties, early nineties, won a bunch of majors and, and is a really good golfer. And he was a, a strong Christian man and, and wrote a couple of books about uh, leading and, and became a, a, a great husband and father in, in and in a, speaker to, to people on the tour and so that really ignited my heart and so I was really following Payne a, a lot and there was a time where he was in a, in a he was in a, involved in a plane crash in 1999 and died and it was just a few months after Payne's death that I was here on this golf course walking across this land that the Payne actually walked on and so like I'm thinking about Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods and Arnold Palmer and the greats like I'm walking where they walked It's really cool for me for a golfer But it's even cooler To just a few months after Payne died like a hero of mine to walk where he walked and I want you to understand this idea of, of temple In that respect so there's this idea of the temple is not just where God dwelled because the, the Old Testament temple that this is in reference to was a big place, like a bigger, like a, about this, the size of this campus. And there were outer courts and inner courts, and there were places where women could go, and a place where foreigners could go, and a place where Jews could go, and a place where, where non-Jews could go, and, and there's all, the, all these different places out of, in the exterior courts uh, that were part of this place. And that was, the exterior courts were, were part of the temple. And then there was another place inside the temple where only the priests could go. All right? So the priests could, could get a little bit closer to the action. But there was a very specific place inside of that place where only one person could go. The chief priest is the only one who could go into this, the most holy of place called the Holy of Holies. 
And then inside of that was a small place where this, this golden altar of sorts lived. And that place was called the Holy of Holies. And that place was where the presence of God dwelled. That's what this is talking about. When it says the temple. It's not talking about the big courtyard. It's not talking about the inner courts. It's not talking about the inner temple. It's not talking about the inner circle of the inner temple. It's talking about the specific place where God dwells. That's the temple. Do you not know that you are the specific place where God dwells? I need you to just sit with that for a second. Do you not know that you are the specific place where God dwells? That is really good news. In, in a world filled with crazy racial tensions and crazy tensions everywhere, and, and this conflicting wrestling match between this group and that group, and a, a confusion inside of us that doesn't understand what is my role here, what am I supposed to do? God, the, the specific place where God dwells is you. And God's plan throughout all of eternity was for that to be the case. Look around the room. We're not a very big church. But there's temples everywhere here. The full presence of God is dwelling in that heart, and that heart, and that heart. The full presence of God. And God's plan is to send those fullnesses of him into this world to make a difference, to bring forth his attributes. Everything that is true about the justice of God resides in you. Everything that is true about the salvation of God resides in you. It's incredible. The second word there is spirit. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, pneuma. It's the very presence of God pressing itself down into the, into the, the nooks and crannies and nuances of who we are. The spirit of God, God's spirit dwells in you and presses himself down into the very fabric of who you are. But there's more here. It's not just talking about spirit. It's, it's God's spirit. I want to bring a couple of quotes to you to, to, to enlighten this a little bit. Um, Matt Chandler says, Jesus referred to the spirit as he, a helper, a God. The spirit is never an it. Because the Spirit is fully God, and God is a personal God, the Spirit has personal attributes, and He acts personally. I think this is the biggest misconception that we have. Remember the hermeneutical posture. We want to listen, we want to learn, and we want to lay down our presuppositions. Here, when we're talking about who the Spirit is, I want you to listen, I want you to learn, and I want you to lay down your presuppositions about who the Spirit is. So many times... In my life, growing up where I grew up, I think of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal force that 
that somehow magically or supernaturally makes things pop into my head. Well, there's some truth to the activity of the Holy Spirit doing things like that. Who the Holy Spirit is, is a personal force. It's a personal being, not an it. He has personal attributes. He acts personally. A.W. Tozer said this 100 years ago. The Holy Spirit is a person, and as a person can be cultivated. He can be wooed and cultivated as any, the same as any person can be. People can grow on us, and the Holy Spirit, being a person, can grow on us. Think about that idea. The Holy Spirit is a person that can be cultivated. And think about this world that we live in. Think about this time that we live in. Think about the absolute necessary need for this world to have the attributes of God injected into it. We need grace, we need peace, we need hope, we need justice, we need all of these things that are God to be injected into our world. And God's plan is for the Holy Spirit, a real living person with a personality that can be cultivated in you so that those attributes can be injected into this world. Do you see the, like, the vital nature of what's happening here? It's so massively important. It's the gospel and the spirit lives in you. I want to look at, at two quick verses about what the, this cultivation of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Have you ever been in a relationship where somebody hurt your feelings, hurt you really bad? You ever been in that relationship where somebody does something to you that hurts your feelings and causes distance in a relationship? If you, everybody is there. Everybody is like that. Everybody's been there. Right? If, is, is there anybody here that has not had someone hurt them? You have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit. That word grieve means to cause sorrow. In this context, means to cause sorrow by sin. When we sin, we hurt the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit. The same way... When, if you're in, if, like, a marriage or a, or a deep personal relationship and you lie to someone, that what happens there is there's a, there's a disconnect, there's a hurt, there's a, I don't trust you, I'm not going to allow you close to me. That idea, that distance that's created by that lie is what this verse is talking about. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, you can cultivate the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Quench here is to, to push away. Don't push the Spirit away. How do we do that? We, we do that by ignoring Scripture, ignoring God's call for us. We do that by not holding to what is good. We do that by engaging evil. Think about the response in your heart, not in your actions, but in your heart and in your mind. Think about your response to the verdict from this week and your response to the response to the verdict this week. And think about quenching the Holy Spirit. And I don't, I don't care what you think about protesting. 
I don't care what you think about what happens in the dark overnight. I don't, I don't care what you think about that. I care what you think about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. I care what holding fast to good means. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that's, those are things we can do to push the Spirit away. What can we do to cultivate the Spirit? Tozer says this about what we can do. We cultivate the Holy Spirit by honoring the Lord Jesus. As we honor Jesus, the Holy Spirit becomes glad within us. He ceases to hold back. He relaxes and becomes intimate and communes and imparts himself. Like that's, that language is, I love Tozer because of his, his beautiful language there, that the poetic language. It's very artful in what he says and how he says it. But I think about this idea in Philippians 2 when Jesus, when Paul is writing about the attitude that we should have in this world to be like Jesus was. Have this mind among yourselves. I preached about it like four weeks ago. Have this attitude, the thing about your brain that makes you, that predicts how you respond to external circumstances. That's attitude. The thing that should predict us to our what happens in our external circumstances is the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ. And his attitude, Paul says in Philippians 2, is that he laid down himself and his rights and his privileges and everything that he was. He laid those things down for the sake of another. To cultivate Christ is to be like Christ. Or to cultivate the Spirit is to be like Christ, to honor Christ, to be who he was. And look at the... Philippians 2, what the mind of Christ was, to empty himself. I don't care what you think about me and my rights and my privileges. I'm going to lay them down for the sake of another. Man, this world is ripe for that. To lay down who you, what you think this world owes you so you can serve another. That's being Jesus. And that cultivates the spirit in you. And God's plan for all eternity past, is the Spirit to live in you so the Spirit might be injected in this world? I think about this question a lot. People have asked me this question as a, as a pastor. Where was God when, fill in the blank? Where was God when Hurricane Harvey happened? What's your answer to that? Where was God when Harvey happened? Where was God when Irma happened? Where was God when... The verdict happened. Where was God when that happened? The answer is in you. Do you know, we, we give to an organization uh, called uh, SEND, the SEND Network, S-E-N-D. Sometimes you say that, you say the SEND Network. Not the S-I-N Network, the S-E-N-D Network. We give to that organization. They served about... Uh, almost a million meals at, in Houston at Hurricane Harvey. Where was God when Harvey happened? Right there. Where was God when Irma happened? People, the church, giving back, serving. Why do we serve? Why, why are you compelled to give your money or your time or your, or, or your energy or your gifts or your talents? Why are you compelled to do that? anywhere in the world. Why is the non-Christian compelled to do that? 
the image of God that's living in us. The image of God lives in you. And more than that, the Spirit of God lives in the Christian. The very presence of God lives in you. And the very presence of God that's living in you can be cultivated. And it's your responsibility to cultivate it. It's my responsibility to help you cultivate it. And then go and inject it into our world. This is really simple stuff. But it's really exciting stuff. You are fully equipped. Fully equipped to be Jesus in this world. Do you, do you like, do you walk around that way? Do you, do you watch the videos and read the tweets about what's happening in our city with that knowledge that God's intent and design is for you to inject his justice and his grace and his mercy and his peace and his hope into those lives? That's, that's your directive. You are designed to be Jesus. I want to leave, I want to end this morning with what that looks like. Get that next slide. Um, let's, let's read this together. This is Jesus. This is talking about the gospel and Jesus and what is living in you and what we're called to inject into this world. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. Let's read this together. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There is so much depth to these verses. There is so much application to these verses for our world right now. This is what a loving and wonderful and perfectly planning God has injected into you. Look at that. Rich in mercy, great love with which he has loved us. It's active. It's acting. It doesn't sit in its living room. It moves. The love of God moves and is active towards you, towards us. Look at that. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were completely out of our brains, flipping him off, running away from him, hating him in that moment, his love was active, moving towards us. And that spirit, the fullness of that spirit that was in Jesus is in you. Remember, we started with that verse that Jesus said, it's better for me to go away because I'm going to bring you this helper, this personality that can live inside of you and be cultivated by you. So massively important. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. There's nothing about you that's of any value that wasn't put there by God. Everything about you that's naturally there is repulsive to God, but God has seen fit to, to bring his grace to you, to change you so that you might go and change the world. And we're equipped fully and completely. Let's go. Let's go do something. Um, 
Let's, uh, let's pray and respond. God, I thank you so much for Jesus whose work has allowed us to be in relationship with you. But God, more importantly, whose work has whose work has brought the Holy Spirit to live in us. The fullness. God, the fullness of you. We are we are your temple. We are the place where you dwell. God, help us to come to grips with that. Help us to fully understand that. God, I pray that as we reflect on our own sin, as we take communion in a, in a bit, and we, we, we taste the bitterness of our sin, God, that we would somehow connect with the depravity that's around us. Connect with it, Father, and understand that there's a similar depravity in us. And the only reason that we have anything in this world to offer of value is because of the grace that you've given to us. God, make us ministers of justice. Make us ministers of your grace dispensers of your grace, Father. But first, connect our hearts with our own depravity and our own sin and the salvation that you've done to us, given to us. Lord, help us to understand that we are fully equipped to go and serve in this world. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. It's by the power of Jesus that I pray. Amen.